Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain, and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. Sherry goes, that first Corinthians reading is really weird. Like, are you going to talk about this? And like, the answer is yes. But like, nothing makes me happier than you've read it, you've already looked at it, and you come into worship with questions. You have blessed me today. I want you to know that. So... Now I I'm, I'm feel under the gun to make sure that you all walk out of here with some sort of understanding about what in the world meat sacrifice to idols has to do with us in 2024, but let's see if we can get there. <clears throat> what I'd like to do, well, I do this a lot. If you haven't figured this out about my preaching, I hope I, I will try to explain it to you that for me, preaching is not a series of episodes. We talk about this, and then we talk about this, and then we talk about this. It feels much more like a conversation. Like what was said last week, sort of, I'm thinking about it as I come into this week, and what I say this week may, may influence last week. It's this ongoing conversation about what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. And so I'd like to use last week's idea to point to this week's action. Last week's idea, and today maybe we can put some more concrete flesh and bone on this. We talked about Mary last week. Mary at the wedding of Cana, and remember that story where they had to fill the jars because they were out of wine, and Jesus turns the water into the wine, and that's a beautiful thing all in and of itself, but we talked about what Mary says and how Mary is an example for the church. Her last recorded words in scripture were, wonderfully bluntly, do whatever he tells you, and we said if the church exists for nothing else, it is simply to point to Jesus And to invite one another to simply do whatever it is that he tells us. It is our most profound and direct advice from Mary and by extension the church. This is what we are about. The role of the church is to point to Christ and to bid people to follow in the way of Christ. I wonder if you went home thinking about the same thing that I thought about. Because sometimes I'm like, well we say these things which means we didn't say other things. And it struck me, as, even as I was processing, and I know I spend time in the, in the Word, but I'm still processing what God may have said to me after, after a worship service. It struck me that Mary doesn't say, believe whatever he tells you. Never says, he's going to give you something and you need, you need to mentally assent to that. She never says, believe. She simply says, do. And I think Mary is on to something here. Mary understands At the core of our faith is not a set of precepts to be believed, but a set of actions to be done. At the core of our faith is not a set of precepts to be believed, but a set of actions to be done. Now, some of you might look back and say, well, wait a second. Like, the church believes things. Like, are you saying we don't have anything we believe in? I'm not saying that at all. We have creeds. We have the scriptures. We have all this other stuff that tells us, here's what we believe and here's why we believe it. It didn't say we don't believe anything. But as we watch the church develop, the church didn't start with a list of theological propositions. The very first creed, and we have this written in the scriptures because we see it repeated over and over. And our, and our, our analysis of the text tells us that this functioned as a creed. The simplest creed was, Jesus is Lord. Everything about the early Christians, was built upon these three simple words, Jesus is Lord. 
And even our greatest theologian, the Apostle Paul, he says in one of his letters, he says, I resolve to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. We can argue about everything else, but here at the center, that's, that's what we believe. We trust in Christ. That's what we believe. Everything else is what we are to do. That trust in Christ causes us to live in certain ways. And what I think Mary understands and what the church came to understand is that we don't think or believe our way to faithfulness. We don't think or believe our way to faithfulness. We don't reason it out in our head. What we do, we do our way to love. If love is what we are to be about, we won't think our way to love. We will do our way to love. And so Mary's advice is right on point. Do whatever he tells you is the surest path to deepening our love for God. Not think about God, but do whatever he tells you. In this way, faith is an action of the heart, not primarily of the head. And when we, ask, when we are asked, do you love Jesus? Our answer, the proper answer, doesn't first come from the head. It comes from the heart, or actually, what the ancients told us is the guts. It comes from here. We do our way. We enflesh our way to love, not think it. Some of you will argue with me. So you don't believe me? Well, let me use an example that's very prevalent here this morning. There's more purple here than an Ash Wednesday service. <laughs> and I know what's up, all right? I'm excited about the game too. And that got me to thinking. This congr and this congregation, one of the reasons I love being here is because y'all love sports. If nothing else, you can hate my guts and we can talk about sports, all right? And we will do that. I appreciate that very, very much. And this is a football-loving congregation, even if that is not true for all of you, okay? And if that's not you, just hang in there for a second with me, would you? My question to you who love this, how did you learn to love football? Did someone explain it to you? Did someone extol the virtues of combat sport? Did they tell you about the ways that it builds character and teamwork and endurance? Did someone explain the intricacies of the nickel defense? Some of you who love football don't even know what a nickel defense is, but that's beside the point. Did someone explain the importance and, and, and map out all the different blocking schemes? I bet not. Most of you just did it. You just did it. You watched the games and you collected football cards and you threw a Nerf ball around the yard and you played flag football and, and you went to high school games and you attended Super Bowl parties and you just kind of did the things that football people do and over the course of time you found yourself loving it. This is certainly my story. I had, I had, three, I had three guy cousins every single holiday. We had this tiny little Philadelphia Eagles football. All right, I don't know why it was the Eagles, but that's where we're at. This tiny little thing, and my cousins had a gun for an arm, and they would just jack it as hard as they could. But every holiday, we would just play this game. And I remember my father not telling me, you know, how football builds virtue. He told me about Johnny Unitas, and he told me about Raymond Barry, and he told me about Lenny Moore, and he took me to meet them, and I have autographs from all three. Yeah, what's up now? I will always remember my father because of these autographs, but we taught, he told me the stories of Alan Amici and Johnny Yu, and, 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 and he told me the story of Joe Namath, and we have no time to talk about Joe Namath, and he told us about Super Bowl V and all these sorts of things. 
And over time, as we just do the things that football fans do, we came to love it. Nobody thinks our way to the things that we love. It doesn't have to be football, whatever it is for you. The thing that you love, you did it and found that you loved it all the more. Maybe the philosopher Rene Descartes was wrong. If you know who Descartes is, Descartes says, I think, therefore I am. Maybe he's wrong. Maybe for humans, it's I love and therefore I am. Humans aren't primarily thinking creatures. We are primarily loving creatures. And so our faith isn't grown by thinking more, knowing more, arguing more. Faith is grown by doing more. It's grown by worship and catechesis and sacrament and prayer and scripture and service. The organ that shapes our faith isn't primarily our minds, although our minds have a great role to play in our faith. Walk into my library. I care about what we think. But that's not where faith is formed. Faith is formed in the heart and in the guts with what we love. And this was certainly true of Jesus. How do we know that Jesus loves us? Not because he convinced us by some rationale, but the scriptures tell us that he created us. The hymnist tells us that he leadeth me. And Paul says that Christ demonstrated his own love for this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ did for us, and that's how we know he loves us. We are defined by what we love, and we love what we do. The things that we do demonstrate the things that we love, and that is what shapes us. And so to love Jesus is to do regularly, repeatedly, and over time. And in doing, we come to know. And this is why Mary and the church throughout the generations calls us Not to intellectual assent, but to obedience. And so if we take this principle and apply it to a specific situation that, as Sherry has already pointed out, has absolutely nothing to do with our real life, eating meat sacrificed to idols. In 1 Corinthians, we have a congregation in a very metropolitan area you have, to understand first, you have to understand the Corinthian people as a lot like, like, when Paul writes to the first Corinthians, he's not writing like he's writing to Silver Run. He's writing like he's writing to a congregation in New York or Chicago or L.A., the place where the world kind of comes. Corinthians is at the crossroads of major trading routes, and so there's people from all over the place everywhere. And so they are not interacting with people that kind of look like them and think like them. They are interacting with people who have wildly different ways of viewing the world. And this is the issue. It's not an issue that they're interacting with different people. The issue is how do we do that? And they have an issue right now around do we eat meat that has been sacrificed to other idols? If this happened to you this week, tell me. I would love to have this conversation with you. But again, this, isn't, this, this example isn't for us necessarily. And you're like, well, what does this have to do with anything? Well, there are complex issues for people who are trying to figure out the faith rooted in this question. There are questions of worship. Because Christians at the time are saying, we worship God. If we eat this meat, are we worshiping another deity? And you can understand where that might be relevant for them. There's questions of hospitality. What does it look like to engage with our neighbors around us? They've invited us to a meal, 
But if I attend this meal, am I assenting to what they assent? How do we relate to our neighbors? That is an absolutely relevant question. It relates to mission. Who are my people and who are we, who are, how, do we, how do we do our work best in the world? Is it by engaging or is it by recoiling? And so Paul is trying to walk them through this. And he begins where we kind of began. He says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. We can gain knowledge and it do very little but puff us up. It says, knowing thinking isn't what matters. What matters is love. Put it in a way, it's not the head, it's the heart, y'all. And Paul doesn't dismiss thinking, but Paul gets right down to the core, just kind of like the early Christians did. They had a very simple way of understanding this. Paul says, here's what we know. This is our only conviction. There is no God but one. He says, we are not engaged in a battle of deities where we've got our God and you've got your God and those are warring against one another and we're going to see who wins in this great cosmic struggle. Paul's like, that's not what we do. We don't believe that. We believe that all, everything has been put underneath the feet of Christ. That's already taken care of. He says, there are many, and that doesn't mean there aren't many things that claim to be God. There were back then. There were gods all over the place. And there are many things that claim our affiliation, claim our identity, claim our allegiance still today. Everything from religions to political parties to our wants and desires to families and friends. There's all kinds of things that are clamoring to govern our perspectives, how we see the world, and how we think about our life. So there are gods, but he's like, we don't buy any of them. He says, for us, believer, follower of Christ, for us, There is one God. Who is this God? The Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. It's where we come from and it's what we're aimed towards. And he says, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. We are made in his image and through whom we exist. We get our life from him, from his spirit, which now resides inside of us. He says, even in this complex moral situation, we start from a very simple place. Jesus is Lord. All these other things are not. And so he says, based upon that, eat. Let me put this in churchy language for you. It's a free meal. Go ahead and have a good time. All the church people are like, oh, shoot. Which, and this is, this is remarkable because church people always get the reputation of don't do this, don't do that. Paul's here is going like... How about it, guys? All right, free meal. Might as well, you know, as an animal guy, I'm like, don't waste the animal. Might as well eat the thing. That's what he says. He says, go for it. Paul elsewhere writes, for freedom, Christ has set us free. For let us not be bound by rules that aren't rooted in Christ and his lordship. But there is one caveat. So close. So close. There is one caveat. And that caveat doesn't come from God is going to judge you. This caveat comes from following Jesus. It's precisely the lordship of Christ that puts one, one, oh shoot, what's, what do they call it? Rider. One rider upon our freedom in Christ. Freedom is bound up by our obligation to our neighbor. All freedom is bound by our obligation to our neighbor. And Paul walks through this. He warns them. He says, take care that this liberty of yours 
is not some, does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. And he goes on this long extended argument. And this also makes sense. What, and he says, what happens if you're having a grand old time, but someone who doesn't understand this the way that you understand it, who is struggling with this, who might have just come out of this idle, idle kind of culture and is trying to reject that and still isn't quite sure, doesn't quite have it nailed down, is still wondering what it means that Jesus is Lord. What if they see you and in seeing you, they kind of get confused. Now they're going, wait a second, we're Christians, but we're also worshiping these other gods. I hope you can understand sort of the moral questions that somebody who Paul describes is weak, but we might say young or inexperienced or still immature in the faith, they might get some questions. These questions, well, what if they partake and it moves them to the, off the idea that Jesus is Lord, to this idea that there are lots of lords, we're just kind of picking and choosing which ones we want. He says, before you take a bite, consider others. And the principle is clear, Paul says, if anything Anything in our own behavior comes, become, comes between someone and Christ, then we are to do away with it entirely that others might have access to Christ. And one of my least favorite verses in all the scriptures, because you all know my diet, I would give up meat entirely if it meant one person would come to know the truth of Christ. Does giving up meat bring people to Christ? No, but we're going to remove anything that would keep one person from the love of Jesus Christ. We are free, but our action, our doing, our love must always be first and foremost for our neighbor. Jesus is Lord, so love your neighbor first. And this is what Jesus is getting at when in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, where your treasure is, what you value most, what's in your guts, there your heart will be also. What you do, what you value, that's where your heart will be pointed. And to follow Christ says, before you think about your own freedom, think about your obligation to your neighbor. And so what about us? Well, the real point of application is that you, if you encounter someone this week who is struggling with meat sacrifice to idols, you have got an action plan going forward. And again, if that happens to you, please tell me. I'd be very interested to have that conversation. But I doubt that's the issue. As a congregation, we are what we love, and we love what we do. Whatever we do most is where our heart is. That's where our treasure is. And so we know that we want to be a place that loves Jesus more, that makes a difference in the lives of real people, that makes a real impact in the community. We want the community to be better because we're a part of it. We want to see the kingdom of Jesus Christ brought to earth. We want to see these real and tangible things happen. And we have all the freedom of the kingdom of heaven to do just that. There is one God. He has sent his son, Jesus Christ, who gave himself on the cross for us. And we have been set free from sin, death, and the devil. And we are free to live in the full freedom of Jesus Christ. But we must do, we must love towards our neighbor. And some of us might go, oh, my neighbor. And as soon as I said that, somebody popped in your head. You know who I'm talking about. There's always that neighbor, right? I have that person too. It's not any of you. 
Okay, <laughs> we all have that neighbor. <laughs> Some of you nodding, all right? Some of you getting a little Pentecostal in here. You're like, yeah, I know who you're talking about, all right? You're like, I don't like that person. This person is a real challenge for me. This person gets on my nerves. I get it. One of my greatest fears is I am that person for someone. Nobody said that to me, but I'm scared to death of being that person for someone else. Which, like, I don't feel like I don't want to. I, this person drives me nuts. Well, here's a little encouragement for you. Author C.S. Lewis says, Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, he writes, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love them. To act in love will always take us to actually loving. And that's the great secret of the faith. This is what Mary had in mind. She says, do whatever he tells you. Doing what Jesus tells us will lead us to loving him more. She's like, how do I love God more? Just do what he says. How do I love my neighbor more? Act as if you love them. And when you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. And so I offer sort of a challenge, a question. As we go from here today, as a congregation, as we go into the world this week, how do we do love to our neighbor rather than thinking about love to our neighbor? How do we work, not necessarily from our heads, do I like this person, do I love this person, what is God asking me to do, but rather out of our guts and our body where we say, I'm just going to do this thing, and in doing it, we find that we love it all the more. Just like everything else we love in our lives, if we do, we will love more. And so inside the church, how do we love our neighbor more? Even the neighbors we haven't met yet. We are not a good church just because we say we love our neighbor. We become a good church because we do the things that look like love, and in that, we will come to love our neighbor all the more. So in your family, some of you go and see some people this afternoon at your parties. You're like, oh, that guy's going to be there. Well, no, <laughs> Again, I just don't want to be that guy for somebody else. And I'm not trying to run anybody down. I'm just trying to be realistic about where we're all at. But don't worry about whether you love them or not. Act as if you do. And in your workplace, don't worry about whether you love the people around you. Act as if you do. And in the community, don't worry about whether you love your community. Act as if you do. And when the church does this, as Mary taught us, we will find ourselves actually loving more. As we love more, the world will step back and go, they've got love in ways... This was what the early church did. The early church loved people that were completely and totally unlovable. And the world couldn't figure it out. And that's why Christianity still exists to this day. Because we loved well. So meat sacrifice to idols, don't worry about that. But loving your neighbor and prioritizing their needs in the love of Jesus Christ, that we can all do. 